Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Coming up on today's episode, I mean, you talk about a week as a long time in politics. Amazing to think that just seven days ago, the biggest political story was that Joe Lycett had been a bit rude to the Foreign Secretary on telly. So Henry Zeffman, the Times' associate political editor, joins me to look back over an extraordinary week in politics. A week ago, we were talking about all of those things piling up in Liz Truss's intray. Well, they're all still there, and she'll have to return to them at some point. Before that, though, a very special columnist panel today, once again, as ever, joined on a Monday by Libby Perris and Rachel Sylvester. But attention very much on the events in Westminster Hall, where King Charles III was addressing MPs and peers. I've got to stop using the phrase extraordinary moment, this, uh, Rachel. I mean, not unique. Lots of people think that everything that's happened this week is is unprecedented. In fact, the Queen addressed uh, MPs and peers in, the, in Westminster Hall about five times. Yeah, but this just feels like the first time the new king is addressing Parliament. It's, a, you know, it's one of the many rites of passage and rituals that we've gone through as this kind of transition period. So it is extraordinary. Uh, and there's a sort of huge warmth and... Uh, that will be apparent in the reception across all parties in the House of Commons and the Lords. Let's just talk about Westminster Hall for a bit. It, explain what it's like for people who don't, because we, you know, everyone knows what the House of Commons looks like because it's on the TV all the time and it all looks very old and grand, even though actually it dates from the 50s because obviously the House of Commons chamber was destroyed in the in the Second World War. Explain... Westminster Hall for someone who hasn't been there? Well, it's this huge cavernous um, uh, chamber, really, but it's normally people use it as almost a passageway from one part of the House of Commons to the other with huge stone floor... it's just very ceiling, bare, isn't it? It's, very it's, bare. Yeah, it's a sort of uh, warehouse. They sometimes have sort of exhibitions in yeah. there of history. Um, but, it's, it, but it is the sort of historic place where... And also big enough for all the MPs and a large number of peers to gather. I mean, it was built in 1097, and this is the bit, it's, it's sort of the oldest bit of the, what is known as the Palace of Westminster. And when, you know, the blitz happened and when the fire happened, you know, this was the bit they, they worked to save. Uh, actually, they let some of the newer, in inverted commas, bits uh, go by because, you know, the, the, this was, this was the, the most important. It's seen so many huge moments in history. And you do have a sense of history there. Yeah. You know, you, off it, there's the sort of place where MPs can hang their ceremonial swords and, you, you know, it's, there's sort of great wide steps leading down into it. Because I've, I've, been, I've, been, I've walked through there so many times and not really thought about the history and I've been on tours and remembered it. I mean, you sort of look it up, this is where the trials of William Wallace took place, Guy Fawkes. I mean, you know, on a day when Charles III's about to address them, this is where Charles I went on trial exactly. uh, for, yeah. uh, for treason uh, and was sentenced to death. And it was there that they had the, the, uh, the coronation of Charles II, uh, who was there to restore the monarchy uh, years later. Uh, I think Libby Purvis uh, joins me now, again now. Morning, Libby. Morning. Um, just your, your, your reflections on, 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 as we were just saying, just another extraordinary day. Absolutely. It's goosebumps all the way, isn't it? I mean, the stuff you were talking about, Westminster Hall, but also Scotland's farewell. I think this rather intimate 
friendly farewell from the local butcher and the people standing by the road and standing on stiles and the very fact I mean there's a strange ridiculous pride going on in our family and tribe because uh, the hearse belongs to William Purvis the undertakers and there's very few Purvises with an ES who are not relatives in some way because it's quite small the ES group uh, so yes it's, it's goosebumps it's extraordinary and I think one of the astonishing things is this welcome to Charles. I mean, that's absolutely, uh, you know, people have been going on for years about when the Queen's gone, you know, that's it, that's it. And then you get him outside the palace and this sort of outpouring of sympathy and affection going on and his quiet, gentle, statesmanlike speeches, which we'll hear another shortly, I think. Uh, I just, uh, you know, it's, everything's kind of turned around from being a kind of rather New York Times issue, Britain's on the Britain's on the schedule, you know, well, when the Queen goes, that's it. And suddenly, we don't seem to have this feeling around anymore. I mean, I hope this lasts. I hope this sense of unity and, you know, for, for good or ill, we are one country and we stand together. Uh, the people I've been talking to down here in Suffolk, very much like that. And very sweetly, somebody said yesterday... You know, very kind of ordinary. She just works as a cleaner and, and runs around. She should have said, oh, I do hope they kind of make up all these family rifts because you have to, don't you? You know, like we always have to in all our families. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a mixture of family and high ceremonial. It's kind of, uh, as I say, goosebumps. And also that sense of the Queen, uh, the, the late Queen, travelling from Edinburgh to London, bringing together the whole United Kingdom, so Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England, all united yeah. in this morning, at a time oh, when politics wish... has been so divisive and divided. Yes. I think the Queen... But I wish, it, I wish it was on the train. There's, there's a wonderful opening to a novel by Laurie Graham called The Future Homemakers of America, where the train goes by. Uh, after the, 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 the king died and you know, the princesses are on it and all the, the American servicemen from the base all rush out and they meet the locals because they're all standing by the railway line. You do wonder if they'd managed to do that. We wouldn't be talking about people queuing for 30 hours outside uh, Westminster Hall uh, to, for the lying estate. Well, we could just see the pictures now. Uh, king Charles III pulling up outside uh, Westminster Hall um, uh, to make his way into a dress. Was, well, I don't know how many people, 100 pe 800 people, 1,000 people maybe in... Uh, in uh, Westminster Hall. And there's a real, I suppose there's a real part of, 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 as you were saying, Rachel, introducing the king to the parliament over which he will uh, preside. And, you know, it was as the Prince of Wales just a few months ago that he delivered the, the Queen's speech in her absence of the state opening of parliament. But this is the first time that he'll address them as king. Well, and it's a reminder that the although it's a kind of, in a way, ceremonial role, the monarch does still have a constitutional role Uh he will uh, put into royal assent all legislation and also that sense of uh, an, uh, weekly uh, meetings with the Prime Minister of the day. Uh, oh, there we are. Those. So that is the fanfare uh, of trumpets sounding as the maces are covered. The mace, of course, it, uh, normally sits in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords to signify the authority of the king. But if the, if the king is there... Uh, then you don't uh, need that. So uh, uh, King Charles and Queen Consort Camilla making their way through. Uh, well, there's a mixture there. I can see the sort of MPs and peers that I recognise, but there's some in military uh, uniform uh, too. There's all, I can also see members of staff from the, uh, from the sort of parliamentary estate uh, uh, alongside as well. And Rachel, it was interesting the, the point that Libby was making about the sort of the unity thing. You do wonder a new, a country which has been so divided on so many issues, 
referendums here and there, election contests, everyone shouting on Twitter. A new prime minister and a new king, regardless of the politics, does it's a sort of real, it, it could be a reset point. I really hope so. And I think a lot of people will be hoping so too. And the Queen obviously represented that continuity and that unity. Uh, and I think our politics has been so much about not only division, but also kind of ruptures with the past and, you know, revolution and tearing everything up, move fast and break things. Uh, and the Queen's motto would have been move slow and keep things together, actually. Uh, so there is that sense of will, how, to what extent will this change handover prove that and be a moment for unity? Charles Camilla taking their seats on the throne on the, uh, on the steps in uh, Westminster Hall. So red, uh, a red carpet has been uh, laid out for them. But uh, actually underneath that carpet is a plate which marks so many people, so many other great historical moments. I think we now hear from the, uh, the Lord Speaker, Lord McFall, will now address uh, the King. Your Majesty, I welcome you and Her Majesty the Queen Consort to Parliament today on this solemn occasion. Her late Majesty, our treasured Queen, and your beloved and deeply missed mother came here to Westminster Hall many times to receive the congratulations of her loyal subjects in the two Houses of Parliament and to celebrate with them historic landmarks and her long life of dedicated public service. She was both a leader to and a servant of her people. Her humility and integrity commanded the respect and captured the imagination of peoples and nations across the globe. Her late Majesty's joyous unstinting and reassuring presence across the years made it difficult to contemplate that her long and inspiring reign of deep and unparalleled devotion would ever end. We and the nation closed our eyes to this inevitability, but it has ended. Only a few months after we celebrated her late Majesty's historic Platinum Jubilee. And as you said so movingly, Your Majesty, in your address to the nation, we all now feel a sense of loss beyond measure. Nevertheless, the qualities that Her late Majesty embodied with such constancy remain to inspire you, Your Majesty, your family, and all your subjects. We remember her commitment, her kindness, her humour, her courage and her fortitude, as well as the deep faith which was the anchor in her life. Your Majesty, this is a historic space. Its walls built more than 900 years ago by William Rufus and the magnificent hammer-bean roof above us, commissioned, commissioned 300 years later by Richard II. Since medieval times, much of our national story has taken place within these very walls, from civic gatherings to coronation banquets to the centuries during which this hall was at the heart of our legal system. 
But this ancient hall is a living space, and like our great nation, it continues to evolve. In 2012, Her Late Majesty came to Westminster Hall to mark her Diamond Jubilee, and we saw the unveiling of the splendid memorial window commissioned by both members of Parliament's houses, which now graces the north wall of this historic space. And now, for ten years, the light from that window has added beauty to the grey stones of this place, bathing them in colour and reminding hundreds, nay, thousands, millions of visitors to the Palace of Westminster of Her Late Majesty's dedicated life of service. Like the light that shines through this memorial window, Her Late Majesty's magnificent achievements will live on by permanently illuminating and enriching our lives and our national discourse. Your Majesty, even as we mourn the loss of our dear Queen, we and future generations will draw strength from her shining example. Your Majesty, on behalf of all the members of the House of Lords, I pledge my loyalty to you and wish you and Her Majesty, the Queen Consort, well in the life of service to which you have dedicated yourself. We are proud and indeed humbled to welcome you as our King, and we look forward to welcoming you on many more occasions to Parliament and to this Hall in the years ahead. Finally, Your Majesty, the House has commissioned me to deliver the following humble address, which their Lordships agreed on the 10th of September. I shall now read the address. Most gracious Sovereign, we, Your Majesty's most dutiful and loyal subjects, the Lord's spiritual and temporal in Parliament assembled, beg to leave to convey to Your Majesty the deep sympathy felt by this House in the grief Your Majesty has sustained by the death of our late beloved Queen, Your Majesty's mother of blessed and glorious memory. To extend to all the royal family the deep sympathy of this House in their grief, which is shared by all members. To assure Your Majesty that the example of selfless public service, which her late Sovereign displayed over her reign of 70 years, her untiring endeavours for the welfare of her peoples, and her fortitude in adversity will ever be held in reverent, affectionate and grateful remembrance. And to express to Your Majesty our loyalty to Your Majesty's royal person and our firm conviction that under the blessing of divine providence, Your Majesty will, throughout your reign, further the happiness and protect the liberties of all your peoples in all your realms. Lord McFall there, the, lead, uh, uh, the uh, Speaker of the House of Lords, addressing uh, King Charles III for the first time. He's uh, looking at the pictures. Uh, uh, Charles is uh, to the left uh, with Camilla to 
uh, sitting to his left, and then the the sort of lectern where the speakers are speaking from is off to the left uh, with uh, a, a separate sort of... Your Majesty. Le- oh, we don't hear from uh, Lindsay Hall, the common speaker. Let me welcome to you and to Her Majesty, the Queen Consort, on this solemn occasion, members of both Houses of Parliament gather here to express our deep sympathy for the loss we have all sustained in the death of our Sovereign Lady, Queen Elizabeth. We have seen that this is a loss that has felt around the world. It is a loss to the United Kingdom, the overseas territories, the Crown dependencies, and many countries over which she reigned. It is a loss to the entire Commonwealth, which she did so much to nurture. It is a loss to all of us, but we know, most of all, it is a loss to you, Your Majesty, and to the Royal Family. Newspapers have been filled with photographs of Her Late Majesty since the news broke. The most touching have been the glimpses into the family life which we usually kept sheltered from public view. Deep as our grief is, we know yours is deeper. We offer our heartfelt sympathy to you and all the royal family. We know that there is nothing we can say in the praise of our late Queen, your mother, that you will not already know. Over the past days, members of the House have spoken of their encounters with Queen Elizabeth. They have spoken of her sense of duty, her wisdom, her kindness, her humour, how she touched the lives of hundreds of thousands of their constituents in her visits to every part of this country. The words have been heartfelt. She sat in this historic hall, as you sit now on many occasions. Some of those occasions were to celebrate milestones in her own reign. The addresses to celebrate her silver, golden and diamond jubilees shared a common thread that our constitutional monarchy is a symbol of stability in an ever-changing world. As Speaker Boothroyd said, Queen Elizabeth's wisdom and grace demonstrated for all to see the value of a constitutional monarchy in securing the liberties of our citizens and the fundamental unity of this kingdom and the Commonwealth. On other occasions, our late Queen was here to mark the historic moments, such as the 50th anniversary of the Second World War, a war in which she herself served in the armed forces. And in 1988, we celebrated the 300th anniversary of the revolutions of 1688 to 1689. It is perhaps very British to celebrate revolutions by presenting an address to Her Majesty. But those revolutions led to our constitutional freedoms set out the foundation for a stable monarchy which protects liberty. In your first address to the nation, you recognised your life would change as a result of the new responsibilities. You pledge yourself to uphold constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. These are weighty responsibilities, as the early Queen Elizabeth said in her final speech to parliamentarians. 
To be a king and wear a crown is a thing more glorious to them that see it, that it is pleasant, that them that bear it. We know you hold the greatest respect, the precious traditions, the freedoms and responsibilities of our unique history and our system of parliamentary government. We know that you will bear those responsibilities which fall to you with the fortitude, dignity demonstrated by Her Late Majesty. When the House met at the Accession Council, my first symbolic act was to make the oath to be faithful and bear true allegiance to Your Majesty, King Charles. And so it is my duty to present our humble address to you, our new King, to express both our sorrow and loss of our Sovereign Lady and our confidence in the future in your reign. Most gracious Sovereign, we, Your Majesty's dutiful, loyal subjects, the Commons of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, in Parliament assembled, express deep sympathy felt by this House for the great sorrow which Your Majesty has sustained by the death of the late Queen, Your Majesty's mother. Extended to all the royal family the deep sympathy of this House in their grief, which is shared by all its members. Assure Your Majesty that Her Late Majesty's unstinting dedication over a reign of over 70 years to the service of our great country and its people and to the service of the countries and the peoples of the rest of the wider Commonwealth, which will always be held affectionate and grateful remembrance. And to express to Your Majesty our loyalty to you and our conviction that you will strive to uphold the liberties and to promote the happiness of the people in all your realms, now and in years to come. Commons Speaker Sir Lindsay Hoyle there presenting the address from the House of Commons. Uh, we will then uh, hear from uh, the King replying to those addresses in uh, Westminster Hall. Uh, you can see behind, uh, lined up, the, uh, the guards, uh, the King's bodyguard or the Yeoman of the Guard. I mean, all the pageantry you would expect. Lindsay Hoyle literally there presenting uh, that humble address uh, to uh, the King. Uh, he passes it to the right to, uh, to an aide and then makes his way to the lectern to reply to those addresses. My Lords and Members of the House of Commons, I am deeply grateful for the addresses of condolence by the House of Lords and the House of Commons, which so touchingly encompass what our late Sovereign, my beloved mother, the Queen, meant to us all. As Shakespeare says of the earlier Queen Elizabeth, she was a pattern to all princes living. As I stand before you today, I cannot help but feel the weight of history which surrounds us and which reminds us of the vital parliamentary traditions to which members of both houses dedicate yourselves with such personal commitment for the betterment of us all. Parliament is the living and breathing instrument of our democracy. That your traditions are ancient, we see 
in the construction of this great hall, and the reminders of medieval predecessors of the office to which I have been called, and the tangible connections to my darling late mother we see all around us, from the fountain in New Palace Yard, which commemorates the late Queen's Silver Jubilee, to the sundial in Old Palace Yard for the Golden Jubilee, the magnificent stained glass window before me for the Diamond Jubilee, and so poignantly and yet to be formally unveiled, your most generous gift to Her Late Majesty to mark the unprecedented Platinum Jubilee which we celebrated only three months ago with such joyful hearts. The great bell of Big Ben, one of the most powerful symbols of our nation throughout the world and housed within the Elizabeth Tower, also named for my mother's diamond jubilee, will mark the passage of the late Queen's progress from Buckingham Palace to this Parliament on, on Wednesday. My Lords and members of the House of Commons, we gather today in remembrance of the remarkable span of the Queen's dedicated service to her nations and peoples. While very young, Her Late Majesty pledged herself to serve her country and her people and to maintain the precious principles of constitutional government which lie at the heart of our nation. This vow she kept with unsurpassed devotion. She set an example of selfless duty which, with God's help and your counsels, I am resolved faithfully to follow. King Charles III addressing both Houses of Parliament, MPs and peers in the historic uh, Westminster Hall. Uh, the King there even referring to feeling the weight of history of being in such an extraordinary uh, building. I'm still joined in the studio by Rachel Sylvester. Libby Purvis is with us too. Um, Rachel, it, it's uh, another lot of emphasis there from, from the King about the principles of democracy, the Constitution, uh, the describing Parliament as the living and breathing instrument of democracy. Clearly people who in the past have wondered what sort of king he would be. He's known to have expressed lots of views to ministers on, on various issues in the past. He appears to be quite clearly trying to draw a line under all of that. Yeah, he, as he said as well in his first address to the nation, he's going to have to change um, how he operates, who he is, his role. He can't any longer be a campaigning uh, Prince of Wales. Oh, I think we can hear there that uh, they are uh, singing uh, the national anthem in uh, Westminster Hall. And that uh, draws to an end the formal part of the uh, the ceremony in uh, Westminster Hall today. Uh, the uh, 
Um, the king obviously will will leave first, heading to Scotland uh, for the for uh, what is another busy day uh, ahead for him. Sorry, uh, Rachel, I interrupted you. Well, he spoke of his selfless duty, but also how that would be he'd carry that out with the help of the government, the constitutional government, the Commons. So he was very much making clear that he doesn't see his role any longer as to assert himself over the elected politicians. Uh, but there is still a role of influence for for the monarch, as the Queen, the late Queen uh, showed, as that sort of still small voice of calm. And I suspect in those private meetings with the Prime Minister, the King will still... Uh, say what he thinks, set out his views. He won't do so publicly, but I think it's in the national interest that he does so. And I wonder how outspoken he will be in those private meetings behind closed doors. We've heard reports that he was concerned about the policy on um, sending immigrants to Rwanda, for example, about any attempt to water down um, measures on climate change. How much of that will he say privately? He won't say any of it publicly, but I wonder whether privately he will uh, try and influence the Prime Minister in those um, weekly meetings. Uh, Libby, if that is the case, there's a, there's, a, there's a big call to be made then by Liz Truss. I was quite struck at the weekend just how how much seemed to have been briefed out by those people around Liz Truss, what she knew when and where she was going and who she spoke to and all that, in a way which I thought was possibly a bit unnecessary. It's not, you know, the build-up to the budget. Um, and you do wonder, you know, it would be that we'd soon find ourselves in constitutional hot water if suddenly we were being briefed that the King had told the Prime Minister that he did or didn't support this issue or another. Libby? Yes, I... I hope that is not going to happen. I think that is not going to happen. I don't think Liz Truss is that kind of an idiot. And certainly uh, I think King Charles III is not such an idiot. What I liked very much in his earlier address, and this, this is something which will resonate through, is when he said that the Prince of Wales, the new Prince of Wales, William, uh, will be continuing his work to bring those on the margins to the centre where they can be helped. Now, I've been involved long ago with the Prince's Trust and so on, and that's exactly what he was doing. And I think, in a way, he was passing on the baton. It would be quite good if we were to hear a few hints from the new Prince of Wales occasionally that uh, he has concerns about these these social affairs and, and the way government is going. That would be really interesting. But Charles himself, as he's said himself, I'm not an idiot. You know, I'm not a fool. Uh, I'm not that stupid, I think, with his actual words. Um, he, he will be, I think, very calm and very thoughtful. And, of course, one of the things in those meetings we have heard occasionally from prime ministers is they ask questions. The Queen asked questions. And sometimes, as any very good interviewer knows, it is the question which causes thoughts to readjust themselves and ideas to readjust themselves and I think he is going to be very good at that. I think he's always been quite a listener. He's always been very intense. The only encounters I had with him was very intense and he was at a very miserable time of his life then but uh, it, it's uh, I think he'll be fine. I, I do. I don't think we're going to get a lot of this sort of constitutional nonsense like we had with sort of Thatcher and, and the Queen. <laughs> we're just watching, uh, uh, he was just uh, deep in conversation actually with uh, Lindsay Hoyle and uh, Lord McFaul, the leaders of the Commons and the and the Lords, uh, just as he's uh, departing from uh, from the Palace of Westminster. It was extra- I'll be honest, I was down there uh, on uh, on Friday. It's extraordinary the amount of work they've done to because that whole building was sort of covered in scaffolding, and they've done their best to sort of tidy it up as uh, uh, as much as possible. And I suppose actually the, the, the other point, um, Rachel, is that, that 
um, King Charles has not landed from Mars. Uh, he has been around a long time. He has seen things come and go. He has had conversations with senior ministers and prime ministers of the year. So actually, can be not the, to the same extent the 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 um, uh, voice of of experience to Liz Truss that the Queen might have been, but actually, you know, he's been part of the of the Constitution and the great sort of the national, uh, the big national questions and so on for a long time, and so. Blind, you know, Liz Truss could really probably do with that that sort of uh, uh, an ear to bend once a week. Uh, for better and for worse, actually. So we know a lot about what he thinks. Uh, he's expressed it publicly in the past. Uh, and we know a lot about where his money's come from for the charities. So there are problems there. We know a lot about this king in the way that we didn't about the queen when she first... Because she was so much younger. She was so much younger. From a different age. From yeah. a different age. Uh, so that's an advantage to him, but it's also a disadvantage. Uh, and I think... The trick for him, which I think he probably will do with wisdom, is to turn it to an advantage and to make clear and use that sort of wisdom and experience as to question um, the Prime Minister, Liz Truss, and her successors, just to be the, the challenge in the room in a way that nobody else can because everybody else she talks to has got some vested interest, whether yeah. that's personal ambition yes. or partisan, uh, you know, loyalty or disloyalty. And it was, normally this would be such a febrile time for a new Prime Minister and everyone trying to, you know, having an agenda of one sort of another. Uh, and so, uh, actually, yeah, having that, 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 that uh, relationship with the new King will be incredibly important. Um, uh, Libby, I just wanted to talk about your column today. Uh, you, the Queen was a majestic guide <laughs> to growing old gracefully, uh, which I thought was a good... Um, yeah, we've got a, a nice way, and it's nice, it's sort of nice the way the commentary, in mean, my column on Saturday was particularly silly because I talked about dressing up as the Queen, but it's nice that the commentary, you know, of course it's been sad for lots of people, uh, but, you know, it is possible for sort of life reflection as well. We absolutely. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is I wanted to sort of concentrate on the last 25 or 26 years of her life because I am the same kind of age, a couple of years younger, but the same general area as Prince Charles. And we don't actually think that that's terribly old anymore. You know, you think you're in kind of vague late middle age when you turn 70 these days. But there is all this time afterwards and the temptations of youth we all know about, you know, fecklessness and, and you know, chasing skirt or whatever it is. But we don't talk about the temptations of old age which are turning into a frightful old curmudgeon and refusing to have anything to do with any new stuff and assuming all young people are daft. You know, all that stuff. Or rejecting new technology. I had some funny examples in my own family. Um, that actually, you know, the Queen is rather wonderful in all these ways. She seems to have escaped the curmudgeonliness and at the same time escaped the other modern curse, which is pretending you're much younger, you know, <laughs> hanging around in a bikini at 76 all that stuff. Um, so I think, uh, so I just thought, okay, you know, let's, let's give some credit to the elegant way she managed to age, you know, without curmudgeonliness and without uh, sort of uh, trying to be down with the kids. Um, and uh, I, I like that about her. But as I say, it's about the, her last 25 years, which we've been so sort of fixed in history and all the past that it was quite nice to come, you know, to come to that little bit of her life. And I suppose it's interesting because actually it's not just a, uh, an interesting decision on her part, Rachel. It's quite key to ongoing support for the royal family. I was really struck when I was down at Buckingham Palace on Friday, just the diversity both in sort of ethnicity but also age. It wasn't all sort of retired... Uh, uh, grey-haired people turning out, to, you know, because she was of their generation. It was very diverse. Yeah. And that's actually a part of it, isn't it? And, the, uh, you know, for every 
visit to a hospice, there was a, a funny video she did with Prince Harry, you know, or, you know, and it's amazing that so much of the information we're getting from the royal family now is being posted on Twitter. Yes. You know, and that is, and it's not with a big song and dance or like trying to be down with the kids particularly, but it's it's part of reflecting modern life. Well, and also as, as she aged, she kept that sense of fun and even frivolity. So, you know, pretending to jump out of the helicopter with James Bond, the Paddington Bear tea. There was that sense of still entering into the spirit of the age. And you saw it in the ceremonial stuff today. So there were the beef eaters, you had the state trumpeters, this incredible ceremony and pageant and pomp and very old-fashioned. But yet the television cameras that were there, the details were being released on Twitter. And it is that sense of the ability of the royal family to evolve, which I think has been the key to her success and will be if the secret if um king charles can manage the same that will be the trick he needs to pull off libby purvis and rachel sylvester there and of course you can read them in the times every week just get yourself a subscription go to the times.co.uk forward slash times red box up next henry zeffman joins me to look back over an extraordinary week a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. For what we'd normally do at this time, we bring you the big thing. And they say a week is a long time in politics. Of course, that was first uttered by Howard Wilson, number five in Queen Elizabeth's 15 prime ministers. It's become a cliche for a reason. But it seems barely plausible that seven days ago, the front pages were fuming with the fact that the comedian Joe Lycett had been a bit rude about the foreign secretary on television. Since then... We've had a new Conservative leader, a new Prime Minister, a first PMQs, an uncosted but multi-billion pound plan to freeze energy bills, the death of the monarch, the proclamation of a new king, millions of people here and around the world coming together in a shared sense of shock and sadness. Yet when we talked a week ago about the extraordinary intray awaiting the the new Prime Minister, well, none of those issues have gone away. And if you're worried about paying your gas bill or your rent or your mortgage or you're waiting for an operation or struggling to see a GP or locked in a standoff with your employer about pay rises or simply worried about climate change or immigration or Ukraine. Well, all those issues are still there. And at some point, Liz Truss and her new government will have to address them, just as the country looked to the 14 earlier prime ministers of the new Elizabethan age to rise to the occasion too. 
So today, I'm joined by Times Associate Political Editor Henry Zeffman to guide us through what was an extraordinary week in British political history and history in general, assessing each stage with significance and what it tells us about the direction in the coming weeks and months. Um, Henry, really good to see you. First of all, I mean, what a week. We talk about, people get overexcited uh, in the past, an extraordinary week in British politics because the, the malt house compromise failed or some other, you, you know, but, but th- there's perhaps been no week quite like it in modern British political history. I don't think there has. I mean, the Sovereign and the Prime Minister have not changed in the same week before. Uh, it's, it's an extraordinary thing that happened. It is pretty crazy to think that I came into work last week thinking, OK, we're going to get a new Prime Minister and then the pace of political events from her reshuffle to her emergency fiscal statement to her energy plans is going to overwhelm me right up till Christmas. Um, when actually being here on Times Radio with you is pretty much the first thing I've done today <laughs> because, of course, constitutional news has usurped political news just as the constitution, the transfer of uh, reign from Queen Elizabeth to King Charles has usurped Liz Truss's plans for her first weeks in Downing Street. So let's go back then to exactly, almost exactly a week ago. It was on the programme, we were on live when we, when we brought you the news. Uh, this was the moment we'd all, we'd waited for the whole summer for. Rishi Sunak, 60,399. Liz Truss, 81,326. Therefore, I give notice that Liz Truss is elected as the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. My friends, I know that we will deliver... We will deliver, and we will deliver. And we, and we, and we will deliver a great victory for the Conservative Party in 2024. Thank you. And she's talking about what was going to happen in two years' time. She barely could work out what was going to happen in two days' time. Henry, let's go back, because it's worth reflecting again. It was a closer result than lots of people predicted. What impact did that, do you think that had on her first days in office? I mean, there, there wasn't much reaching out to Sunakites, uh, as you might have expected, given the, the closeness of the result. No, I think her team looked at the closeness of the results. Some of them thought it was closer than they'd expected. Some of them actually privately throughout have been saying they thought it would be closer than the polls were suggesting. And then they carried on with the plan as if she'd won 80-20 in any case. And look, I can understand why. I think uh, Danny Finkelstein wrote a great column in The Times about this. Margaret Thatcher, Liz Truss's hero. I mean, you know, she's duty bound to be every Conservative MP's hero. If they said anyone else was, uh, their career would be over. But Margaret Thatcher's first couple of years in Downing Street were undermined by her reaching out to the wets, as they were called, the other faction in the Conservative Party, to give them big jobs. And Liz Truss decided to do the complete opposite. And what we ended up with, what we now have, is a cabinet where not a single full member supported Rishi Sunak and just one person attending in the least political possible role, Attorney General, uh, did support Rishi Sunak. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I think the narrowness of the result did not affect Liz Truss's first days at all. It could very conceivably affect her first months and her first year, if we get there, where, uh, whereby the supporters of Rishi Sunak, who are now overwhelmingly on the back benches, will feel emboldened that they speak not just for a large slice of the parliamentary party, but also quite a large slice of the Conservative membership too. So that was what happened on Monday. Then we got to Tuesday. Uh, obviously, we saw those those pictures of Boris Johnson went to Balmore, Liz Truss went to Balmore, and then returned 
uh, to London, dodging the rain, it has to be said. In fact, driving round and round central London, waiting for the rain to stop, which some of us got soaked in. Uh, this is Liz Truss outside number 10, spelling out her priorities. I have a bold plan to grow the economy through tax cuts and reform. I will cut taxes to reward hard work and boost business-led growth and investment. I will drive reform in my mission to get the United Kingdom working, building and growing. We'll get spades in the ground to make sure people are not facing unaffordable energy bills and we will also make sure that we are building hospitals, schools, roads and broadband. I will deal hands-on with the energy crisis caused by Putin's war. I will take action this week to deal with energy bills and to secure our future energy supply. I will make sure that people can get doctor's appointments and the NHS services they need. We will put our health service on a firm footing. Uh, let's sort of pick through those, uh, Henry. In particular, uh, tax cuts, um, when are they going to come? Because at one point it was in my mind that we're going to hear from Kwasi Kwarteng on September the 21st, if I imagined that. There were some reports around that. It was never confirmed. Yeah. And, and to be fair, I don't think it was ever sort of confirmed in the government's grid, as it were. But we were certainly expecting to hear from Kwasi Kwarteng an emergency fiscal statement, something quite close to a budget, but not quite a budget, so they don't have to get the OBR doing forecasts uh, about how screwed the economy is. But uh, they uh, those plans are all in complete flux now. I mean... I think the plan is still to do those tax cuts as soon as they possibly can. But the House of Commons is not sitting until the day after the funeral at the soonest. Then they're very quickly under current plans, at least, away for conferences. So I don't know. The tax cuts are going to, of course, come as soon as they can, because that was arguably the clearest and most important pledge of Liz Truss's leadership campaign. But when they're going to come, I don't know. I don't think Liz Truss knows. I don't think Quasi Quarting knows. What detail do we know, apart from not doing the uh, national insurance rise that Rishi Sinat put in place, what detail do we know about what those tax cuts look like? Well, there's, all, there's another tax that is not going to be done, which is corporation tax, yeah. which, of course, was the hallmark of Rishi Sunak's last budget, but one, I think. But that was, that was a decision. The, the original plan was that uh, it was going to be cut, and he said he wasn't. He was going to leave it... Higher. Sorry, sorry. Of course, soon that was going to start. It was going to start rising from this coming That's tax right. year. And so she's uh, going to stop in a couple that of But in terms of the tax cuts that let people keep more of their own money, we don't really know the details of any of that. No, we don't. I think it's possible there'll be something on income tax, but but we we don't know. Um, I suspect a bit like energy bills. Um, for all the sort of coyness throughout the campaign on certain key questions, there actually is a relatively far-reaching plan sitting in a drawer somewhere. Uh, and the question now is just when they get to open that drawer and move back into into normal politics. And on GPs appointments under this you know this time last week or middle of last week we were led to believe that there was a big announcement coming on the NHS today from and we should probably talk about this Therese Coffey deputy prime minister and health secretary right hand woman of the new prime minister tackling one of the biggest uh, issues facing the government, backlogs in the NHS generally, and in particular this problem they have of people can't get a GP appointment. Well, it's, a li- it's still a little bit unclear what that promise means. I mean, I think Liz Truss in her speech outside Downing Street said doctor's appointments. That could mean a few different things, mm. right? Not necessarily just GPs. I think it means GPs, but again, don't know because Therese Coffey's ABCD mantra D is for doctors rather than, yeah. you know, G for GPs or whatever. Um, but look, I mean, Liz Truss definitely, I think, rightly gets that uh, it will be a huge political issue at the next general election if the Conservatives have not 
solved the problems as people experienced them with GPs. She's put Therese Coffey, who I think is very new to a lot of the public, which has not been in the cabinet that long, uh, as, you know, not just health secretary, but deputy prime minister. I mean, I was speaking to new junior ministers who were appointed in a phone call by Therese Coffey. You know, she really is at the heart of the government grid. The deputy prime minister thing is not just wow. ceremonial. Was that, was that because of what was happening with the Queen? Or was that no, 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 no. That? I mean, Therese, Therese Coffey is, is, is sort of, you know, helping Liz Truss with the whiteboard. Um, by the way, we should mention just in passing, the reshuffle is sort of on pause. There's a load of junior ministerial roles which haven't been filled, understandably, but it leaves the government in this slightly strange position where they can't sort of get a lot of prep work done just, you know, while all this ceremonial is happening. But the reason for that is because all the ministers are appointed by the monarch. Well, and we had, there were, there were sort of some were coming out. Uh, in fact, I think we even on Thursday got a list of people who had been approved by the Queen on the Wednesday. That was one of the strangest... Uh, in fact, no, that was the strangest press release I've ever received. It was during that period uh, after the Palace announcement, and the, in, the initial announcement had come, and so you know, we knew what was coming before long. And uh, Downing Street sent an, out an email saying, uh, on Wednesday, the Queen was pleased to approve the appointments of such and such to take effect on Thursday. Uh, whereas usually you get, you know, the Queen has been pleased to approve the appointment of Dr. Therese Coffey MP as Deputy Prime Minister and Health Secretary. But yeah, it is a reminder of uh, the centrality, the fusion of all the pomp and circumstance that we're seeing, uh, pomp and ceremony that we're seeing today uh, and in the past few days and in the coming few days and the much more mundane business of Parliament. Actually, in our strange constitution, one can't really happen without the other. And so the reshuffle is now on pause. And there was a very, very strange mo uh, issue with Penny Morton's as leader of the House of Commons and president of the Privy Council, but hadn't been because there hadn't been a meeting of the Privy Council because that was the thing that the the Queen had cancelled on the on the Wednesday. So, so, but she was acting president of the Council when she proclaimed the King, and then he could appoint her as formally president of the Council. Yeah, I think what basically happened, if you boil it down, uh, and you know, forgive me, constitutional experts, but I think basically what happened was Penny Mordaunt said to to the King, "You are the King." And he said, thank you very much. You are the Lord President of the Council, <laughs> uh, which is a little bit strange. But I mean, that's just that. I think that was a. But yeah, no, there was there was sort of questions over whether Mark Spencer, who had just been demoted by Liz Truss, was formerly leader of the House of Commons and uh, concurrently Lord President of the Council. What a moment for Penny Moore. I mean, given, you know, she was she had that sort of uh, huge surge in the summer, you know, as the, the, the favourite briefly to become uh, Tory Prime Minister and uh, 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 Tory leader and Prime Minister. Uh, Liz Truss then sort of appeared to be trying to fob her off with a load of jobs that she didn't feel were quite up to her. She ends up as leader of the House of Commons, normally a bit of a sort of parliamentary backwater, and she ends up playing a key role in the proclamation of the king. Well, I I was thinking more than once, actually, in recent days, because that's how sad I am, how furious Ian Duncan Smith must be. <laughs> because he... Uh, sorry, Sir Ian Duncan Smith. Because he turned down this job. Uh, I think understandably, because he thought, well, if I'm going to go back into government, I want to run a big department. Yeah. But, you know, the moment in history to, to proclaim the accession of the king, um, you know, I think I think probably quasi quarting James Cleverly and Suella Bravman would have run would have, that job in that day, in that moment, uh, than the, the great officers of state that they were given. So we move on. So the, so the reshuffle took place, or at least the cabinet took shape on, to, on the Tuesday of last week. Uh, we continue our... I'll look through how uh, a week is a long time in politics. Let's turn our attention to, to Wednesday then. Another huge moment for Liz Truss and her first PMQs. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister claims to be breaking orthodoxy, but the reality is she's reheating George Osborne's failed corporation tax plan, protecting oil and gas profits 
and forcing working people to pay the bill. She's the fourth Tory Prime Minister in six years. The face at the top may change, but the story remains the same. There is nothing new about the Tory fantasy of trickle-down economics. Nothing new about this Tory Prime Minister who nodded through every single decision that got us into this mess and now says how terrible it is. And can't she see there's nothing new about a Tory Prime Minister who, when asked who pays, says it's you, the working people of Britain? Well, there's nothing new about a Labour leader who is calling for more tax rises. is about reducing taxes, getting our economy growing, getting investment, getting new jobs for people right across the country. I'm afraid to say the right honourable gentleman doesn't understand aspiration. He doesn't understand opportunity. He doesn't understand that people want to keep more of their own money. And that is what I will deliver as Prime Minister. I will take immediate action to help people with their energy bills, but also secure our long-term energy supply. I will take immediate action to make sure we have lower taxes and we grow the economy. And that way, I will ensure we have a positive future for our country and we get Britain moving. So that's PMQ's last Wednesday. Henry uh, Zeffman, it's sort of the battle lines of the next general election being drawn to some extent. Uh, Keir Starmer, I mean, actually, I thought both of them came out of it pretty well. And unusually, given the mess of politics for the last nine months, 12 months, it was at least an argument about a policy and not about the personality of one or the other. It was a substantive debate in which uh, I think genuine, not clever, clever questions were asked and genuine and not wildly evasive answers were given. Um, I really enjoyed it, actually. Um, And I thought, you know, it reflected the differences between Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, as is well rehearsed, is an ideological chameleon. Uh, I don't know if he knows what he believes on some key issues, let alone the House of Commons knowing what he believes. And uh, Liz Truss, whatever her faults, does know what she believes, uh, particularly on economic questions. I mean, that's the key thread that ran through her leadership campaign, but actually runs back to her being Chief Secretary to the Treasury. If you speak to people who were asking her about her economic advice ideas when she was a backbencher who just arrived in Parliament, I think it's fair to say there is a consistent sort of swashbuckling low statism to it. Um, And so when Keir Starmer said, well, why are you not imposing a windfall tax on energy uh, producers to fund uh, money off energy bills? Why are you instead proposing borrowing... um, Liz Truss basically said, well, we're not going to tax our way out of uh, recession or we're not, you know, tax rises are not, what was it? We're not going to grow, tax rises are not going to help grow the economy, was basically have you. And they, you know, they went back and forth on that question, but that was the fundamental divide. And I don't see either of them budging from it. And, mm. and I think that's quite refreshing. Um, the other thing that I thought just in sort of terms of PMQ's craft, and I know I'm speaking to someone who <laughs> properly stops and pauses and thinks about every word that's said every Wednesday to, to great effect. 
Um, so, you know, forgive me if I get this wrong, but I think what was very impressive um, and very refreshing was the sort of brevity of yeah. the answers. You know, it was not, oh, here's my five-minute clip for Twitter. It was, you ask a question, here's the answer, sit down. But also, I suppose, because it, it was, there was less evasion... It wasn't, you know, Boris Johnson or, or Rishi Sunak. Because actually Rishi Sunak, to some extent, tried to explain that although he was having a windfall tax, it wasn't really a windfall tax. If you are quite happy to say, this is what I'm doing and I'm willing to defend it, you can do that more quickly than when you're trying to convince people that's not what you're, not what you're doing. Indeed. And look, by, by the way, just to caveat what I just said, as impressive as it was in terms of PM craft and uh, brevity and all of that, um, I think Liz Truss may well be on the wrong political side of that. Well, yeah, because actually, Very crucially, crucially uh, we found that with the focus group that we did last week, that people liked her, uh, her statement out of side number 10. They thought it was quite good the way she sort of slightly duffed up Keir Starmer there. But then if you explain the, the, the argument they were having, should energy companies or the general public pick up the bill, they were quite clear that on that, at least, they sided with the Labour Party. Which, in fact, which brings us to... Then Liz Truss's uh, big announcement. This takes us to uh, Thursday, uh, and this was Liz Truss addressing the Commons again. This guarantee, which includes a temporary suspension of green levies, means that from the 1st of October, a typical household will pay no more than £2,500 per year for each of the next two years while we get the energy market back on track. So there it was, £2,500 for the average energy bill, Henry, and much more detail beyond that there was not. No, there wasn't. And uh, I was preparing as part of the media to clamour for more detail, uh, but very quickly became apparent that, for for, uh, obvious reasons, there's not going to be more detail for a while. Look, I mean, I think um, we should not lose sight of what an extraordinary announcement it was. I mean... We don't quite know how much it will end up costing. I think to some degree it's unknowable at this point. But, you know, if uh, it was a great piece by Ed Conway in the Sunday Times on this, I mean, it really could end up being the largest sort of peacetime financial bailout in effect uh, that we've seen. Um, So, you know, it is a very big deal. It made it onto something like page 30 of the Times. But, you know, in due course, we will have to revisit it properly. Um, But... Yeah, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing for the woman who I've just, you know, I've just hailed her ideological consistency and not wanting the government to engage in people's lives. And here they are um, intervening to set the price of uh, fuel, of of energy. But um, do you think it's because they don't know how it's going to be paid for? Or she just thought that maybe doing the good news of uh, we're freezing your energy bills separate uh, might be better? I think it's a bit of both. Um, I think their broad view... Uh, and I expect this to remain the case for a while at least, is that it will be paid for by general taxation. You know, the money will come from the Treasury. Yeah, the magic money tree in the end uh, always yields. Um, and I suppose, I mean, actually it was interesting, there was some instant polling, I think, uh, YouGov asked actually on sort of Thursday afternoon, almost as if the as the uh, the statement was being uh, made, uh, huge support for it. You know, um, uh, 8 in 10, so they support the policy. Uh, only 10% oppose it. Uh, popular right across the... But I suppose it's, you know, most people support uh, not paying more for their energy bills. Uh, but 68% said there should be a windfall tax on oil and gas companies in order to fund it, including more than 64% of Tory voters. I mean, one other thing about the politics of the policy, 
uh, is that, yes, it will stop people's energy bills soaring to the levels that Four, we, 5, we were expecting them to, that, that, that these forecasts were suggesting they might. But for people to really give the government the credit for that, they have to. They will have to compare what will, in any case, be very high energy bills That's the point. to a counterfactual. Yeah, yeah. You know, they, they, the, the government is going to have to say, or the Conservative Party rather, is going to have to say, oh, yes, well, we know your energy bills are hard and you're having to make cutbacks and you're not eating out as much and you're not whatever, whatever. But think how high they might have been. And I'm just, that's a very tricky uh, political needle to thread and I'm a little bit sceptical that Liz Truss is deft enough to do so. It, because you're, you're basically what I tried to argue is uh, give us some thanks that your energy bills are going up but not by as much as they otherwise would have done Right. rather than you are literally better off compared to you how you were yesterday. You're just not as worse off as you might otherwise been uh, tomorrow. Uh, but then, of course, you know, the, 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 literally during the statement, uh, just after Liz Truss had sat down, uh, the, 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 the drama of day-to-day politics was overtaken uh, by, uh, by the events in the Commons and the events in, in Balmol. This is how it unfolded on Times Radio. The Times at 12.36. Just to bring you an update, uh, well, we've just had a statement from Buckingham Palace that says, following further evaluation this morning, the Queen's doctors are concerned for Her Majesty's health and have recommended that she remain under medical supervision. The Queen remains comfortable and at Balmoral, uh, the palace says. So just that in the last uh, few minutes. As we sit here, we're looking at the crowd outside Buckingham Palace. We've been hearing from the, the, the corresponding crowd at Balmoral Castle. There has been this sort of steadily building expectation of a of an announcement perhaps maybe very imminently an announcement of very very great significance indeed i can now say you're listening to times radio buckingham palace has announced that her majesty the queen has died at the age of 96 i will bring you that news again buckingham palace has announced her majesty the queen elizabeth ii has died at the age of 96 John Pienaar making that announcement uh, on Thursday. And Henry, you were in the House of Commons chamber sort of seeing this drama being played out. Yeah, I mean, it was the energy bill statement that we were just talking about and uh, debate rather. And Liz Truss gave her opening speech. Keir Starmer was responding. And midway through Keir Starmer's speech, Nadim Zahawi, who for that, at that point for less than 48 hours had been Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster running the Cabinet Office, uh, sort of paced in with a face like thunder, Motioned to Kwasi Kwarteng that he needed to sit next to Liz Truss, itself quite unusual. Put his hand over his mouth so no one could see what he was saying and whispered something in her ear. And her face sort of dropped a bit. Um, and that, I thought, well, that's that's very odd. Then he went over to speak to Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the Commons, who instantly started talking to his clerks. Zahawi sat down, said something to Liz Truss again, then motioned to Angela Rayner, because, of course, Keir Starmer was on his feet. Angela Rayner being Keir Starmer's deputy to come and speak to him. Anyway, through all this, it, it became clear that something quite serious was up. Um, it was when I saw the speaker's uh, assistant refreshing the Sky News app on her phone that I knew that they were waiting for some sort of statement to be made somewhere before Lindsay Hoyle could make his own statement from the chair. Which is what happened in that, that you heard the statement that I, I was showing there. And then, of course, that's that has paused politics uh, for now. You know, Liz Truss leading the uh, tributes in the House of Commons. Uh, follow. I mean, one of the things that's really struck me is that p- particularly Keir Starmer's statements and since do seem to have risen to the occasion actually in a way that people certainly probably wouldn't have expected from from jeremy corbyn there is a sense that 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 uh he's he, i think several times sort of captured the mood quite well kissed uh, i think i think yeah i agree i think his speeches have been very good i mean look i don't sniff at the difficulty of 
any politician writing uh, a speech like this, you know, and I think Liz Truss is probably weren't rhetorically uh, amazing, but, you know, perhaps in her sort of more uh, uh, low key way captured a sort of seriousness of of uh, reflect of national mood of reflection. But like, like, yeah, I think Keir Starmer's speeches were excellent. I think particularly his lark in one during the House of Commons tributes, which I was very privileged to be sitting in the press gallery for a really amazing occasion. Um, I also thought Harriet Harman gave a great speech in that debate, sort of recasting the Queen as a, as a feminist uh, icon in a man's world. Uh, Boris Johnson, of course, as we know, made an excellent speech. Theresa May even managed to make a joke. Uh, it was, uh, no, it was, it was it, I mean, it's such a cliche, oh, House of Commons at its best. I mean, you know, what does that mean? I mean, it's the only time that debate it, it, has it happened in 70 gives, years. It just means but, they gave some good, interesting, entertaining speeches and people listened, I suppose, that's the thing. Just on the subject of Boris Johnson, do we know any more about what he's planning to do next? We'd have probably heard a lot about that at the weekend if, uh, uh, if, if things had panned out as we expected. Well, look, I mean, his uh, reference, gosh, it really was only a week ago, uh, less than a week ago, to Cincinnatus. Yeah, of course. Uh, returning to his plow, um, I mean, you know, he he knew that he knew what we were going to do in response, which was call up Mary Beard and ask who his Cincinnatus is, <laughs> uh, and uh, and you know that was a hint. I mean, I think I don't think it's a controversial thing to say. Boris Johnson does not feel he's done. He wants to return to Downing Street at some point, and um, you know, if Liz Truss starts to falter when politics re- resumes, if the polls don't look great for her. I mean, you know, you can look at your watch and get ready for the first briefing to the Mail on Sunday, or whoever it may be, that, you know, perhaps Boris Johnson should take take charge again before the next election to save the Conservatives from electoral ruin. Just finally then, Henry, sort of looking ahead, what happens next? With Lib Dem party conferences happening, other party conferences we think are happening, fiscal Probably. statement coming. How does, how does politics between now and Christmas look, do you think? Well, I mean, it, it will ramp up quickly again simply because it has to, simply because there's so much happening. Uh, so I don't know whether they'll have to adjust the dates that the House of Commons is sitting. The Lib Dem conference, they were just very unfortunate. It happened to coincide with the funeral itself, right? So there was no question that could ever really happen. Uh, I think Labour conference will probably happen later that week. I suspect Keir Starmer's team will hand out mini union jacks to the front rows for his conference speech. And he, you know, he will not spurn the opportunity to uh, stress again his patriotism and the differences between this Labour Party and its previous stewardship. Um, And then uh, and then the Conservative Party conference suddenly becomes a huge moment for Liz Truss because she hasn't had this two or three weeks to introduce herself to the British public. So that will become our opportunity too. But look, there's other things mixed in there. As you say, the emergency fiscal statement has to come at some point. Liz Truss is meant to be in New York in about two weeks, less than two weeks, in fact. Uh, in fact, less than a week uh, <laughs> at the United Nations General Assembly uh, in New York. She was maybe uh, going to try and get a meeting with Joe Biden at the White House. I don't know if that will happen. I suspect she doesn't know if that will happen. Uh, but look, I mean, politics, I think, will play out roughly yeah. along the dividing lines of that session of Prime Minister's questions. And we will wait and see whether it looks like she has recovered the Conservative Party's quite dire approval ratings and whether it looks like the next election remains in play. Anyway, it's been absolutely fascinating. What a week. Uh, what a week in politics. And I suspect we'll have many... Well, I suspect we won't have many more quite so dramatic. Uh, but, uh, but plenty of politics to pay out over the coming weeks. Uh, Times uh, Associate Political Editor Henry Zephyr, thanks so much for joining us. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast. And this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 